The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books podcast with me, Sean Kane. And me, Richard Lee. The rules of language have been in the news recently as the new leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, issued guidance to staff asking them to stop using words such as hopefully, equal and very, demanding that they only use imperial measurements and give all non-titled males the suffix esquire. On this week's podcast, we'll explore the way language and punctuation is evolving and how the differences between languages suggest different ways of thinking. And we'll speculate about Jacob Rees-Mogg's ongoing concerns to ascertain whether they're no longer fit for purpose. And yes, I did just cram four of the words that he'd like banned into that last sentence. David Shariat Madari's new book explores what language is and challenges some of our widely held preconceptions about how languages work. It's provocatively titled Don't Believe a Word, and Claire Armitstead wanted to know, should she believe a word of it? Well, I want you to believe my words. So the words that I'm telling readers not to believe are the sort of myths and rumours that are bandied about, uh, about language and which I hope to debunk a bit. You, you actually have quite a strong view of language, don't you? And you, it includes picking a fight with Noam Chomsky, which not many people dare to do, Yeah, well, about what language is. Well, sort of. I mean, you have to qualify all these things slightly. I, I think there are, you know, large areas of the analysis of language that I would agree with Chomsky on. But I suppose the, the broad flavour of um, his approach to language is something I don't really share. Again, you know, I'm going to characterise it in sort of quite a blunt way now. And, you know, there's obviously nuance to it. But broadly speaking, he's got this innatist view of language. He says that language is a computational system yielding an infinity of expressions. Yes, which is true of one aspect of language. I suppose his unique selling point is that he feels that this is encoded for in a kind of genetically determined blueprint in in the brain, which is separate from other cognitive faculties. So that's his kind of thing. It's called the innateness hypothesis. Universal grammar is the phrase that he uses to describe the nubbin of genetic code in the brain that determines the way that all languages are structured. So what this means is that by dint of being born human, if one is ever going to be able to access language, we all have this thing. And that is the basic building block that we all have in order to be able to speak. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Now, he... He's been uh, involved in a, a project over the last sort of 50 to 70 years, I suppose he started in the 50s, so more like 70 years now, of trying to establish what that component looks like. And the evidence that he uses to figure out the shape of that component is natural language. So it's looking at sentences, seeing what kind of structures we can discern, and then whittling that down to the lowest common denominator that holds between all languages. Because obviously we know that languages are vastly different from one another, but they contain this sort of structural core. And Chomsky believes that that structural core uh, sheds light on what this genetic component looks like. But you think that it's more social? I think it's more social and cultural. I think a lot of the structure of language is something that grows out of the communicative strategies we employ, you know, times a million with each other and there's no reason really no really compelling reason that I've seen to appeal to a sort of discrete genetic module in explaining those things because they can be explained in other ways. Why should we even bother to look for one because it's not going to find a cure for cancer I mean you know we all know how to speak we're born with this ability to speak why why is so much effort 
expended on trying to find the origins of language? Well, it's a, it's a good question. It's not exactly finding the origins of language. It's it's sort of figuring out what language is and what accounts for its structure. And in one sense, I suppose that is a bit of a kind of ivory tower pursuit. But I kind of find it difficult to sort of then say, well, let's just put it to one side because it's so fascinating. I think it's a sort of really early aspect of sort of wonderment that you have about the world that you think, well, why is language the way it is? Why are words like this? Why do I say this sentence like this? And, you know, I've heard about foreign languages and that they say things differently. And why is that the case? For me, anyway, it's a it's a fundamental impulse, which is to sort of find out more about what it means to be human and what this amazing, beautiful thing called language is. There's written language and there's spoken language. And mm. um, a lot of what you're dealing with is is written language but it's a book you put oh, yeah. it's written down on a page what is the difference between written language and spoken language obviously written language is more formal than spoken language but you know people think that linguists are involved in issues of spelling or punctuation or so on um, that's something that linguists don't tend to be very interested in because it's not natural language but for example you talk at one point about your own experience learning arabic mm. and how that changed your idea of what languages are um, because and yeah. part of it is that the Arabic dictionary doesn't begin oh, yeah. with the first letter doesn't file things under the first letter like even to what extent is is that fundamental to the idea of what the language is or is that just a filing system well so I should explain a little bit about Arabic which is a language I only studied for a year so I'm no expert but the reason it's interesting you know the way you look up Arabic words in the dictionary is that Arabic words are totally different to words in Indo-European languages. They're built up using this root structure, and usually the root is three consonants. And from those three consonants, you can build a plethora of words by adding in vowels or sticking a, another kind of dummy consonant on the front. And so that's just kind of mind-blowing because it's totally different to what we're used to. An example is the three consonants, kutter and ber, always have something to do with sort of reading, writing scholarship so kitab which has the long a vowel in there is book maktab is office maktaba can mean library or elementary school you would look up maktab meaning office not under m but under k because that's the first consonant in the triliteral root so so you know that might seem like a pretty rarefied point but actually it, it's it's got huge wide implications hasn't it for for what we think we understand in other languages and what we don't understand and why some things are very difficult to grasp culturally as well as linguistically yeah i mean it it's just one demonstration of the fact that language variety is immense i think particularly if you're raised in britain and you speak english and you're generally exposed to other indo-european languages you probably learn french at school or spanish you might not have an idea of sort of the quite the richness that's out there in terms of linguistic difference i mean this does partly raise another question which i touch on in the book which is the vexed question of the so-called sapir whorf hypothesis <laughs> which in layman's terms is just you know does the language you speak determine the way you think about the world, does language determine thought? In fact, Worf, the guy who gave his name to this hypothesis, coined this uh, phrase, standard average European. And he thought that standard average European represented not only a kind of a language family, but a particular mindset, which was characteristic of people who spoke those languages, namely Europeans, and obviously sort of North Americans. 
So the standard average European cultural mindset way of thinking about things he contrasted with the Native American mindset, particularly in this language that he investigated and described, a uh, language spoken by the Hopi of Arizona. And he thought that they conceived of really basic things incredibly differently, like the passage of time, for example. Now, there's been endless linguistic debates about the extent to which we should believe in the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. The sort of consensus is now that there may be sort of Whorfian effects, subtle Whorfian effects from language to language, but they certainly don't have the kind of all-encompassing effect that Whorf originally suggested they do. We're making it sound like a very serious book now, and actually it's really fun. (laughs) You you. You have a lot of fun. Who is it aimed at? I sort of think it's it could be enjoyed by anyone who speaks a language, therefore everyone, which is quite good in marketing terms. And you're not it? you're not a didact. You're not you're not sort of doing a, a sort of there is a correct grammar. Like oh no, absolutely some of the, the, not. There are a lot no. of grammar books. That's not what it is. No, it's not. It's for anyone who's really wondered about language and wanted to get a little bit beneath the surface. That's not a narrow demographic, I think. I mean, we work in a newspaper and we work with lots of people who love language and would be interested in finding out more about it. It's for everyone, really. I have to say that, you, David, you are, you are an editor on the comment pages yes. of this newspaper. Therefore, you're correcting my bad English all the time. And I went no, to a school that didn't Claire. teach grammar. Um, so we had some... I find it a little bit of an intimidating subject um, because since I've been an adult, I've been told I know nothing about about it. But actually, mm. what you make it, you make it just fun and interesting. Well, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I'm absolutely no, it's it's not about style. And it's not about correct usage. It, it, it's about all the things that you've wondered about. It's about where words come from. What are the kind of structures behind the way we speak? And that's, that's not about defining tenses and talking about participles and things. It's, it's like, well, why when I say, I kick the ball, does the ball come last? And that kind of thing. And I hope that the way I've approached it is relatively gentle. So will you just read a little bit about etymology? Now, etymology, mm. there's a word. Yes. What exactly <laughs> well, does etymology mean and where well, does it come from? Etymology comes from a Greek word etymon, which I think means true meaning. And as I point out in the book, a word's etymology isn't a guide to its true meaning. So shall I just read, yeah, read yeah, a yeah, bit yeah. that I, sort of illustrates that? And that, by the way, is called the etymological fallacy. It's, it's often, you know, you often hear people saying, well, you know what, the word education really means to lead out. And that's what I'm doing when I'm teaching, teaching my students. Well, that's harmless as it goes. But there are sillier examples of the etymological fallacy. Give us some examples. And, uh, and I'll, I'll read you one now. Yeah. Just how crazy can the etymological fallacy get taken to its logical conclusion? If you believe that a word's origin is its true meaning, then you're in a pickle when it comes to treacle. This word is derived from the Greek theriake, which means a sticky concoction of spices and resins. So far, so good. But theriake, in turn, comes from therion, which means a wild or venomous beast. Theriake was a kind of medicine used to offer relief from the effects of bites and stings. Things that bite and sting include dogs, snakes and other wild or venomous beasts. Is wild beast really the true meaning of treacle? Of course not. Treacle is no freak occurrence. There are literally thousands of surprising semantic developments that undercut the appeal to etymology. Litter, in the sense of rubbish, goes back to Latin lectus, 
meaning bed. It came to be used by extension to refer to the sometimes messy materials making up bedding, particularly straw. Hence, a litter of animals born on straw. Passion comes from Latin passio, meaning suffering or martyrdom, in reference to Jesus Christ. Junket ultimately derives from juncus, the Latin word for rush or reed. Jonquette meant a basket made from rushes, and it was used in Wycliffe's 14th-century English translation of the Bible to refer to the basket in which Moses was placed as a baby. In the 15th century, it came to mean a cream cheese served on a mat of rushes, and then any kind of sumptuous feast, which is how we get the contemporary meaning of an extravagant celebration or trip. Examples like this raise the problem of where you decide to pause and say, "No further. This is where the true meaning lies." Is litter really straw, which is from the 15th century, or bed from the first century? Does silly really mean happy, which is from the 13th century, or innocent from the 16th century? It's so interesting, isn't it? One of my favourites is nice. Oh yes. No, which which originally meant a nice point, a precise point, and it's now come to be the blandest put down to say somebody's nice. I, I hate being called nice. I always think yeah. it's terribly patronising which is exactly the opposite of its original meaning. Mm. You say at one point that a word's history can tell us about earlier stages of culture. Is that not contradicting your your point about etymology? Well, I suppose the point about etymology is that the history of a word can't tell us about its meaning now. That's the etymological fallacy. You don't get any insight into the way a word is used now if you talk about its origin in 3rd century Athens or something. Tracing the path a word has taken gives you an interesting insight into the way culture has developed and i suppose that's what i mean about the history of a word shining a light on culture so i take the example of the word toilet in the book and i sort of you know hang on its coattails as it whizzes through history and taking these strange twists and turns so you know originally it meant a piece of cloth that you'd spread over a dressing table and we got the word from french possibly because it was a fancy word that people wanted to use the french word for or maybe because silk weaving huguenots bought this item over and it ended up on fashionable people's dressing tables toilet then is used to mean the things you do to make yourself look nice your toilet whether that's washing or putting perfume on or preparing yourself it also is used to mean the dressing table itself and then it becomes a bathroom and then it becomes the toilet that we know and love today that's an interesting sort of socio-cultural vignette I think from English history that's the kind of thing that the history of words can tell us so tell us about the here and now i mean there, there is a big political dimension to this isn't it we we are not very good at learning languages we make judgments of people who don't speak english well and this is a, it is actually important yeah i think it is i think it's very easy to sort of exoticize romanticize and then the flip side of that is to fear and despise people whose language sort of mystifies you. I think learning a foreign language is an incredibly intimate way of experiencing a culture and if you've experienced a culture intimately it's hard to make generalizations about it. It's hard to sort of put it at one remove or ascribe negative things to it. I went to university to study history but I changed my mind pretty quickly and changed courses to Arabic and Persian. And I was kind of like, oh god, do I have to study Arabic? A, it's really difficult and B, I'm not really interested in Arabic culture. You know, if the kind of general vibe was a bit negative, and I'm like, why do I want to learn a language like this? 
I learnt it and it was just the most revelatory thing and really sort of was a thread that pulled me into learning much more about that world gave me an enormous appreciation for the history of the Arab world and its peoples and I just thought I was really in a position of ignorance before and that might have led me to make sort of snap judgments about people or countries or situations having been enriched by the study of the language uh, I have a more complex view of things now. How is it different? Why, why Arabic and Persian? Well it's interesting because Persian is heavily influenced by Arabic Persian is actually an Indo-European language, so it's related to the language we speak. Um, it's related to French and German and Greek. I should say, first of all, that Farsi and Persian are basically interchangeable. They both refer to the language. The Farsi for mother is Mardar. The Farsi for brother is Baradar. You can tell often with those basic words if a language is related. Farsi is certainly related to English. Arabic is a Semitic language. It's an entirely different language family. Not only are the words very different, the grammar is very different. But Farsi and Arabic have this interesting relationship because culturally they were entwined by the fact that Arabic is the language of Islam. And so when the Arabs invaded Iran, they brought the language with them. It was a tremendously strong influence. There are some estimates that say that 30% of Persian vocabulary is Arabic in origin. So there are lots of Arabic words in Persian, but the grammar is totally different. To someone who studies Spanish or French or Italian, the grammar of Farsi is not very difficult. One last question. It's always said by most people who write books like this that language is going to the dogs, as you put it. <laughs> that our grammar, we're, we're learning to speak less well, less eloquently. Our vocabularies are changing in, a, in an impoverishing way. What is, what is your answer to that? Well, my answer to that is basically that people have always said that through the ages. Unless you feel that English has always been deteriorating... I mean, it's interesting. I have Jonathan Swift saying that English isn't how it used to be. I have people 100 years before him saying, oh, well, no, the, the golden age of English was 200 years before me. And you go back and people then are saying, no, English is terrible. It's a fancy that's never come to pass that the language will deteriorate irretrievably. But actually what's happening is that the language is changing and evolving. Language will never be less than it needs to be for the sophisticated expression of our emotions, thoughts and feelings. So I'm relaxed about English and I'm not hand-wringing about the deterioration of And you, you make the point that the people who are in power tend to be in, their, in middle age, you know, sort of around 40s to 50s. But their snapshot of language they carry we carry with us is not the language that's developing so we think mm. of the language of 20-somethings as being debased when actually it's new we're fixed yeah well you know your stylistic preferences what you're used to is sort of fixed in a period I suppose between adolescence and mid-20s or something and you know we tend to get set in our ways and if you're a 40 year old or you know like me or above you might think um well, I'm not sure I either understand or particularly appreciate the way 20-year-olds or 15-year-olds are speaking at the moment, and it's kind of discombobulating. And one way to express that is to say, well, it's inferior, but I don't think that stands up, really. Well, there we go. There's a fabulous word, discombobulating. That's one of my favourite words. I wonder where that came from. Thank you very much, David. (laughs) Thanks, Claire. David Chariot-Madare talking to Claire Armistead about his new book, Don't Believe a Word published later this month in the UK by Weidenfeld and Nicholson, and due in the US early next year from W.W. Norton.
And David has kindly stepped away from his desk at The Guardian to join us. David, Jacob Rees-Mogg has banned his staff from using words and phrases such as very, due to, ongoing and unacceptable. He's even said no longer fit for purpose is, well, no longer fit for purpose. What do you make of all of this? Well, he's obviously a man with uh, quite strict preferences around the use of words, which, you know, as editors and writers ourselves, we can relate to to a certain extent, I think. But I suppose it's just the conservatism that sort of drips off these particular rules that I think is really notable. You know, he's sort of disparaging the use of hopefully in the way that basically everyone uses it, which (laughs) is to mean that, you know, it's hoped that or I hope that, which just seems incredibly old fashioned and out of out of step with the way people speak. And, and, idea, and indeed right. The idea days. that people should be called Esquire is just... Oh, well, that's... I mean, that's just hilarious and <laughs> very old-fashioned. But, you know, uh, something that we would imagine he would, uh, he would quite like. So do you think this list tells us more about him than it is about contemporary English? Oh, absolutely. I think it's got very little to do with contemporary English as it's mostly used. I think it says a lot about him. One of the interesting things is that there was a study done a few years ago about the personality traits of people who are particular sticklers for correct usage. And um, that showed that people who score high on conscientiousness, which is one of the big five personality traits, are more likely to get irritated by what they see as grammatical errors. You know, conscientiousness isn't exactly as the, the usual use of that word implies. It's someone who has strong industriousness, impulse control, dutifulness, sense of organisation, adherence to norms and rules, and a preference for order and dependability. Basically, a, a sort of place word for Tory, isn't it? <laughs> well, it can be. It can be. I don't think those traits necessarily predict a conservative outlook, but they're certainly sort of compatible with it. You might think that a newly appointed Minister of the Cabinet might have other things to think about. Is this all about the optics, kind of distraction from the ongoing Brexit catastrophe? I, I don't think so. I think he genuinely is, is very invested in this kind of thing. I mean, you can he's created this persona, which is very sort of anachronistic, and that's obviously quite important to him. You see it in his clothes, and I'm sure he wouldn't be seen dead wearing something that wasn't appropriate to a particular occasion, like the wrong kind of tie or something like that. So it's a reflection of that, I think. My biggest problem with this is very. Like, what's wrong with very? Well, I think the traditional objection is that it's usually unnecessary. And so when you're using very, I mean, it used to be a sort of rule of editing that you could almost always cut verys because it's like, well, you know, you've got the adjective coming. Let the adjective speak for itself. But, I mean, I don't have a problem with very. I, it doesn't irk me. <laughs> I think it's quite particular to really have a thing against it. After the break, we'll turn from words to punctuation, zeroing in on the most subtle sign, the semicolon. It's gotten this reputation over the years, among other things, of being a mark for people who are very elite, very educated, that whether or not you use it correctly will tell people exactly what level of education you've attained. Welcome back. In Semicolon, Cecilia Watson tells the story of punctuation's most refined character. Richard, did she manage to persuade you that this misunderstood mark can improve your writing, enrich your reading and maybe even change your life, as her subtitle promises? Oh, it's a tough ask, isn't it? But I mean, it's, it's a very enjoyable read. I mean, are you a fan of the Semicolon show? I really like them. I think I misuse them. 
but I, I think they give a certain flair in writing and I enjoy seeing them used correctly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I must confess I'm not really a fan myself. There's rather too much of the schoolroom about them and also that little whiff of class privilege. <laughs> but I mean, We'll get onto that in a minute. But when we um, reached Cecilia Watson down the line from New York City, I started by asking her to define what exactly a semicolon is and who we can blame. So the semicolon is a relatively young piece of punctuation if you compare it to things like the full stop or the comma or the colon. It's an upstart. It is an upstart, absolutely. It is an upstart punctuation mark, and it's lucky that it has survived this long. So it was invented during the, the humanist period by an Italian named Aldus Minutius. And Minutius was, among other things, a printer and uh, ran, ran one of the most successful and innovative printing presses of his time. And he felt that readers and writers would benefit from having a finer shade of distinction than the uh, colon and the comma were offering. So he thought of punctuation marks, all of the punctuation marks, as pauses, um, much like rests in a piece of music. He thought, look, we need, we need a little pause that mirrors the kind of pause that many of us make while, while reading a text out loud, as was so often done in those days. We need this pause that can stand in for that, that slightly lengthier pause we give than a comma and the slightly shorter one than a colon. So he basically took the top half of a colon and all of a comma and stuck it together to create this completely new punctuation mark, the semicolon. And it really took off. Uh, not all of the punctuation marks that were invented during that time period did. Um, maybe people tried them out for a couple of years and just didn't find them useful. But the semicolon was indeed extremely useful. Yeah, because this is this is only like 50 years after Gutenberg invented the, the printing press. Yes. So there's a totally different attitude to punctuation at the time. Absolutely, completely different. And that attitude hung on for many centuries. As you say, there are many punctuation marks were invented around then. So these, these kind of dots, dashes, swoops, curlicues, all sorts of stuff. Why do you think the semicolon proved so very popular? I think it truly was about two things. First of all, its utility. It really was valuable and people were trying it out and experimenting with it in writing. They actually found a place for it and a function where they didn't just automatically want to default to a colon or a comma. Second of all, it was familiar. I think its its orthography, its its visual appearance really helped it out that it really did look so closely like two punctuation marks that um, were already successful and useful. So it was easy to bring it to mind. Um, it reads nicely when you look at text. Uh, some of the other punctuation marks of the time, you think, oh, that's kind of a shocker sticking out there. I think it was really helped by all of those factors. This kind of breezy, free-for-all attitude towards punctuation was, was brought to a close by the grammarians of the 18th and 19th century. So, But why did their project to systematize, to, to regularize, to, if you like, to scientize the use of punctuation. Why did this project prove so popular? Around that time period, when we get the first real sort of legislation about language, the do this, don't do that, there's a law about this, there's a rule about this type of book that you're referring to, uh, that's when public education really starts to take off in both the US and the UK. So 
for the first time, you're getting students being educated who had never had access to formal schooling before. And this means a couple of different things. So first of all, it means that suddenly people need a way to teach language in a, a systemizable, repeatable way so that you can put a book in the hands of a school teacher who may not have that much experience teaching language per se in an elementary school where they have to teach everything. And it gives them a guide to, you know, here, here's how to conveniently get students to become better users of English. Uh, so suddenly there's a market for this kind of rule-based book. Also, there's an aspect of class and race and gender that starts to come into play here, too, because the people who rush to fill that gap in the market, they're all elite white men. So the story of how these grammar rules came to be a thing in the first place is also a story about some of the beginnings of policing speech and of dictating whose speech counts and whose speech doesn't and what the value of certain types of speech are. Because these grammar rules, uh, whether intentionally or not, and, and I won't speculate as to what these grammar book writers necessarily had in mind, but it enshrined elite white male English as correct English. And do you think those two factors are kind of combined in some sense? I mean, you say there's a kind of market, but there was also this kind of this idea that, that certain kinds of speech, certain kinds of punctuation were being valued. Do you think there's, that those two are combined because there's the anxiety of getting it wrong? Most definitely. And uh, these were the people who were in a position to say, trust me, I'm the educated one. I know exactly what correct English is. Most definitely being able to speak from that kind of authority that comes from being regarded as the educated ideal was very helpful. We may be challenging some of those kinds of uh, forces these days, but still the angst of possible error surrounds a semicolon even now. I mean, is that unease partly because of the complicated way in which it blends the two competing functions of punctuation? It blends uh, the grammatical marker and a kind of aid to reading aloud. It is. The fact that you can write perfectly well without a semicolon, I think, leads people to be baffled about when they should actually throw one in. And depending on your level of education, what the person you're writing to knows about you, what kind of judgments you think might be levied against you if you unsuccessfully use a semicolon, Absolutely. There's a ton of anxiety. People don't want to look incorrect or stupid. And the semicolon, because it has this sort of midway position, it's deeply subject to the possibility that someone could say, oh, well, I, I think you've gotten that wrong here. Um, you should have used a colon. You should have used a comma. Or as we often do these days, just put a dash in there and be done with it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which you can do with pretty much any any piece of punctuation. Just stick a dash in and it solves all of your problems. I guess maybe this unease also encapsulates something about the kind of dual nature of text, because a text is in some sense, it's not only a set of signs that can silently convey an author's meaning, but also it's a kind of guide to some sort of performance, mm. some reading aloud. Yes. I mean, well, I think of it that way, most definitely, that when I punctuate, when I read punctuation, I do hear it and experience it as a pause. 
obviously that's very subjective when you're writing where you envision those pauses happening. Yeah, absolutely, but but also because the idea that, I mean, even though the, the text is used, maybe might be used to, as a public prompt for a, a reading event, it's also used in silent contemplation. And those two things, although they may be similar, are not exactly the same. So the semicolon, with its kind of dual nature, as you've just outlined, it, it plays this uncertain role in those two slightly different uh, arenas. But I wonder if the semicolon could ever shake off his kind of snob status. I mean, the role, as Vonnegut put it, as a sign to show you've been to college. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And that is certainly another another reason that people are hesitant to use it. It's gotten this reputation over the years, among other things, of being a mark for people who are very elite, very educated, that whether or not you use it correctly will tell people exactly what level of education you've attained. And I think it can shake that off if we willfully reject the idea that we're beholden to these incredibly strict, incredibly historically specific and contingent rules. So the more that any of us who write, and we're all all writers, even if you don't think of yourself as a writer, almost certainly you write texts, emails, social media posts, all of these types of writing on which our fortunes, both career and personal, depend. When you write, if you're playful, if you experiment, if you just put it out there, if you maybe use a semicolon in a way that's adventurous, then it might not work. And your reader might tell you, I didn't quite think that worked. But experimentation is the way, I think, to to free ourselves of the kind of Uh, very arbitrary controls and strictures that are placed on us by adherence to rules that truly are made up. And privilege without true justification, a very specific single dialect of educated English. So the only way we can use a semicolon right is by just using it wrong. I think that that's the route to all good writing, to be honest. I mean, there's a reason that we draft and revise and it's because a draft is a place to experiment and to figure out what works. And certainly no good writing of any kind that I can think of is done in isolation by one person. It's always a group project of testing out and revision and figuring out what lands well and what doesn't. And you just can't do that alone. And you can't do it by trying to write through this thick barrier of can'ts and don'ts that might be in your head from traditional teaching of English. That was Cecilia Watson talking to Richard Lee. Are you convinced now, Richard? Well, I do like that idea of us all deciding to willfully reject the strict rules surrounding the semicolon, but it doesn't really seem all that realistic to me that we'll all join up together and do it all simultaneously. Mm. So there's always going to be these kind of lurking questions of class, and there's always that scintilla of doubt in the reader's mind. Is it being used correctly? Which is enough to snag them out of whatever it is the writer's trying to say. So I'd say probably not for the most part. (laughs) Well, Semicolon is out now. It's published by Fourth Estate in the UK and Echo in the US. Next week, we'll be looking at true crime writing and we'll be speaking to the author Rachel Deloach-Williams about her year-long deception by the notorious German fake heiress Anna Sorokin, who scammed Manhattan's high society. And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or leave a comment on the podcast page. And you can subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Sean Kane. And me, Richard Lee. And our producer, Ian Chambers. Thanks for listening and goodbye.
For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.